Hello and welcome to episode 93 of Feckin' Metal. I'm your host, Fergal Trainer. Before we get started, I would like to address some feedback I got recently from a couple of listeners of Feckin' Metal who pointed out to me that ennui is not, in fact, a Japanese word. It's a French word. I'd like to thank at Curtis Sparkles on Twitter and my good old buddy Quinn from And Volume For All for pointing that out to me, so thank you. What's that old phrase, it's better to remain silent and be taught a fool than to speak and remove all doubt? Well, it's kind of hard when you do a podcast because you're constantly speaking and probably constantly removing all doubt in my case, but thanks gents for keeping me on my toes. We live and learn. Anyway, we're rolling on now with a new series of episodes. This is the first of what will likely be three episodes. And I say likely because I haven't edited the whole thing yet, so we'll see when we get there, as Coolio said in 1994, kind of paraphrasing him a bit. This is an interview I did back on the 18th of December with the DJ. I want to say legendary DJ, but apparently he doesn't like being called legendary, or so he says, no, fuck it, the legendary DJ Neil Kay. I'd say a lot of you have heard of him before. He's well known in Iron Maiden circles. He's a hugely important part of the Iron Maiden story, especially early on in their career. But this podcast and this particular episode of this interview series covers the early part of Neil's career. So it brings us up to his, what you might call today, residency in the bandwagon, the story we're probably all familiar with. But you might not be familiar with how he got there. Um, And just for clarity, by the way, because this confuses me even now, even after having read the story a million times and listened to Neil for a long time and edited the bloody episode. The bandwagon was a venue in London. It was at the site of the Prince of Wales pub in Kingsbury, northwest London. The Soundhouse was a night that Neil ran at the venue and the location of both of those was the Prince of Wales pub. But the Soundhouse and the bandwagon and the heavy metal Soundhouse and heavy metal bandwagon, all these terms are often used interchangeably. So just in case you wanted any clarification there, there you have it. Um, Anyway, sorry, yeah, this is the first part of the interview it covers neil's early career so he talks about starting as a dj winning the dj national championships on multiple occasions until he was actually banned from entering he talks about how he thinks sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band changed the direction of popular music and then he talks about how he thinks popular music changed again in 1971 with the evolution of disco and specifically barry white and then he ends up talking about how he got his residency in the bandwagon i don't want to spoil all of those stories for you then there's a lot more in there as well but We kind of finish up around the time where he's invited journalist Jeff Barton to pay a visit to the bandwagon. And of course we know this turns into what would become the new wave of British heavy metal. But before we get to that point, there's a lot of interesting information from Neil about his career, how he started as a DJ, doing a residency, working in the Berlin club scene in 1969, and various other stories that happened along the way. So I hope you enjoyed the first instalment of my interview with Neil Kay. Here we go. Hello there, Neil. How are things? Hey! Yep, just, just coming up. Um, there's my camera. Yeah, I can see it. Sounding good. Well, Fergal, what can I say? <laughs> In the words of 40 years ago, welcome to the Soundhouse. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, look, it's great to have you here, Neil. I really appreciate you doing a podcast with me. Um, really looking forward to hearing some of the stories you've had over the years and your, your lengthy career. Oh, I'm honoured. I'm honoured. Um, I mean, you know, all this, uh, all this uh, attention and excitement since my book came out um, is um, kind of overwhelming in a way. And I, I always tell people, and it's true, and it's in the book as well. I mean, everything that happened so very, very long ago. You know, in two years' time, it will have been 50 years since I started at the bandwagon at the Sound House. Yeah, unbelievable. 50 years. Um, and I mean, you know, look, we never did it for glory. We never did it for the money. I did it because someone had to stand and be counted. I'm a very, I consider myself a very ordinary bloke. I know a lot of people are, are you know, saying that impossible things, that I'm a legend, I'm this, I'm that. No, no, I'm, I'm just a normal guy that had the guts to stand up and do something sure it was very different all those years ago Fergal. i'm sure it was and uh, let's just say for the record what's the name of your book and, and where can people find that book actually okay right well you need to um you need to speak with stefan juras that is s-t-j-e-p-a-n-j-u-r-a-s 
and you can reach him at um, fanclub at maidencroatia.com. He is my biographer, but he also runs the Central uh, Eastern European and European Maiden Fan Club. Very good. He's done an inordinate amount of books on the band and their members and the music maybe 19 or 20. Okay. But mine is the only official book he's ever done. Now, the book is called Recollections of a Rock DJ. Excellent. And it's sort of a trophy book. It's very big. It's kind of like A3 size. It's very, very large. There's over 300 pages in it. It took two years to actually do. And I I, I didn't want to do it at first. Hmm. Because I considered that, look, at the end of the day, I consider myself, I was just a DJ, and DJs don't have books written about them or with them. Musicians do. Sure. Real heroes do. And I never considered myself one of those. And it took Stefan three months to persuade me, and my wife as well. And then my good friend, Steve Harris. I talked with Steve because I felt really unsure. And Steve is probably the one of the few people that really knows me. Yeah, We've maintained a friendship for all these years. And Steve said to me that I should do it because, as you say, I have a lot of stories to tell. I don't pull any punches. I speak as I find. I'm very direct. Um, and Steve said to me that I'd helped an awful lot of musicians and bands at, at that time in the era on the way to fame fortune and stardom so he told me that i really should do it and on his word i decided to yeah okay he wrote he wrote the foreword for it as well which is very nice excellent and great to hear that you've maintained a friendship with him uh going back as you said probably nearly 50 years now at this stage well maybe not since you met steve probably closer to 45 or so 1979 january um is when i met steve Actually, I've got something to show you. It's a little early on, but I think you're going to want to see this. Okay. This is the original Iron Maiden demo tape that Steve gave to me. Right. Early January 79. Okay. Fresh from Space with Studios. Give it a minute to focus. I can see it there. You'll be able yeah. to read what's on it. This is the tape that I took around the record industry. Yeah. The date of the recordings on the top. Yeah. I can see it there, 1978. Yeah, I can't quite make it out. Uh, yeah, December. Yeah. Yeah. And we got Prowler Invasion, Strange World, and Iron Maiden. That's, of course, what became the Soundhouse tapes. Well, three of the four became the Soundhouse tapes. Well, three of them did, of course, not not the fourth. But this is the original demo tape. And it's, well, there aren't many left in the world. I know, you know, Steve has one. And I think Loopy might have had one at one stage from the crew. Yeah. But um, that's the one that did the work. Brilliant. I, of course, it's like a family heirloom. I'm sure you would never part with it, of course, but if... Uh, no, if, not for any money. No, no. It's, if you ever were to, that would fetch a, a tight little sum, I'd say. Yeah. Well, that's... that's. <laughs> you know, in life, we get awards for doing good things and great things once in a while. And that's part of my award, really. It's these days like a Victoria Cross, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know how to look at it. Very good. Um, can we go back a bit further than, than when you met Steve? And of course, we'll get to that because it's a huge part of your yeah, you're yeah. forever linked with Iron Maiden. And that's probably where people first discover your name. Well, people maybe who weren't around at the time, like me, you know, who reads about it in books and magazines and, and things like that. But uh, you were a DJ since the 1960s. So, yes, that's right. Was, was this always hard rock that you played at the or like did that come later on in the 70s? No, no. Um, I, 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 I guess. I mean, I. I will explain later, Fergal, as we move on. Mm -hmm. But I am actually very spiritually driven, as indeed I found out recently, so is Steve. Okay. And there's been some serious psychic medium direction given. Back in the 60s, I left school at 17. I went to a similar school, as did Bruce, British public school. Hated every minute of it. Mm. Couldn't stand being there. Mm. Um, I was also working in a youth club at 15 and I took the DJ national championships three times in a row and they wouldn't let me go in for it again. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, by the time 1967 came along, I was, uh, I answered an ad in an evening paper. My parents didn't even know. 
And I got a job in the London club scene full time at 17 and a half. I was, I was, you know, underage at the time. Yeah. But it was six days a week, eight till three. And I was obviously in training for the future. But of course, I didn't know that. Musically, we just played the what you might call the pop music of the day. Mm. The times were a changing, as old Bob Dylan sang. And, you know, pop music was turning in, into rock. And probably we think, old Malcolm Dome and I was another good friend, mm. that the dividing line came with Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Um, there had been in America signs that it was going that way. MC5, pick out the jams. Yeah. And an acid rock band called Quicksilver Messenger Service did a, a kind of a project vinyl, um, Who Do You Love? It was all based around who do you love, when do you love, where do you love? Mm -hmm. And that was very decidedly acid rock. And that was all about the same time. Also, Jethro Tull had an early beginning there as well. Um, but by and large, you know, what was being played back then was serious, what I call you know, soul music of the day, Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin. Um, you know, we didn't, there wasn't really rock as such. Yeah. We had, we had the um, forward movement from the Yardbirds, which I consider to be one of the most important pop bands of the 60s. We gave you Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, and Eric Clapton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one band with all that. And they were heavy ish no question about it appearing in the 1965 film blow up um in a club scene they smashed up all their gear on stage and of course in 1965 the who yeah anyway anyhow anywhere first single so there were you know it, it there were sort of signs that it was moving that way but really 67 was a kind of a universal year for the young people of the world back then. Mm. There were social events occurring all the way over, you know, in America, bloody Vietnam. You know, there was an anti-war movement of huge size. It, it, I mean, it hit here as well. You know, the young, cool people of the day, which I probably was one, <laughs> naively, <laughs> Timothy Leary, yeah, yeah, he's dead. You know that? The Moody Blues sang it. I don't know that one, so... Um, we had, we did, of course, have in '67 the Moody Blues' first album um, as the rock band format, uh, "Days of Future Past." In it, the incredibly beautiful "Nights in White Satin." That was '67. So, you know, as the development of instrumentation came forward as well, you got to consider that before you could have rock, you needed Marshalls, mm. <laughs> you needed four B twelves, and you needed heads. Yeah. And, you know, you needed a hell of a guitar to do it with. Um, Leo Fender, you know, obviously designed and built the Fender company, um, Telecaster, Stratocaster, but he never played himself. Mm. Whereas Les Paul, being a country player to start with in the late 40s, early 50s, I mean, he was a musician. And um, for me personally, in much later life as a producer, arranger, an orchestrator, which is what I did just before retiring, you know. You know, I actually prefer the sound of the Les Paul. But you've got to consider, back in the 60s, they were around. But the power of rock was a combination of the development, for me, of equipment and the amplification to deliver it. I mean, you can't get that out of a Vox AC30. Yeah. You can get certain sounds, but... The, the Beatles toured with Vox AC30s mainly. And then at Shea Stadium, they couldn't be heard anyway. The kids <laughs> were screaming louder than their little back line could develop horsepower. Yeah. So I think really the ascendancy of rock came about 67 and onwards. I mean, let's face it, 69, first Black Sabbath album, 69, first Led Zeppelin album, a huge amount of underground rock from experimental jazz-based bands like Gravy Train, flout, flautist at the front, like Ian Anderson in Tull. Mm. There were a lot of bands like that around back then. Let's not forget the nice either. America, which Mr. Bernstein hated when he heard it, terribly could have killed the band. Right. And then, you know, obviously they went on to form Emerson, Lake and Palmer. 
I mean, there was a lot of experimentation. But in the clubs, it was keep the floor full or you get sacked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I learned the art of mixing by ear and hand what I wanted. But the golden rule is never speak over the track and never speak after each track. You don't need to. Okay. You just keep them at certain nights. I mean, you know, when it's a balls to the wall night, you play all the big numbers and people get out there and go crazy. But there were other more sophisticated nights at the bandwagon. You know, once I'd gotten five nights a week, and that was by law, funnily enough. That's a great story, and that I will tell you later. Okay. How I went from one night a week to five in a magistrate's court, believe it or not. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, it's an incredible story, and it is true. So, basically, I was there in the 60s. Um, I spent two years in the London clubs learning how to survive and becoming a real pro DJ. In, in 69, I answered another advert for um, uh, guest residential British DJ wanted for the Playboy Club in West Berlin, as it was then. Okay. And I didn't think I stood a chance, but I answered it anyway. And um, to my utter surprise, I got invited up to Manchester to an agent. And when he found out that I'd just done two years pro in London clubs, I got I got the job. Yeah. So in 69, for nine months, I was resident in the Playboy Club in West Berlin. Um, and 69 was not that far away from the Second World War. Mm. And there was still an awful lot of, well, you know, the young people of, of Germany all flocked to West Berlin at that time because it was a free city. Other than that, there was compulsory military service. Yes, yeah, yeah. And with long hairs, they didn't want to do it, you know. But also, there were still the remnants of um, Hitler's military machine, but not so much. I didn't see so much Nazis. But I mean, like, one night in the club, a bunch of ex-Luftwaffe uh, flyers came in for a reunion. Now, my dad was in bomber command during the war. He was actually a navigator on a um, Lancaster squadron and um, he had a few narrow squeaks. Hmm. And, um, it, it, you know, that, funnily enough, my old man was all right with me going over there. My mother would do anything to stop me. She virulently <laughs> hated them, but even more the Japanese. Right. Actually. Yeah. So, it's, you know, it was a, it was a very, very wild um Almost like you'd imagine Wyatt Earp's tombstone to be in the <laughs> late 80s. I mean, there were hookers driving up and down the main drag, mm. doing business from open-top Mercedes. The British Army, the French Army, the Americans were all in West Berlin when they're off duty, yeah, yeah. all carousing. It was a great time. I loved it. <laughs> and, and I was, I mean, Christ, I was only 19. I drove all the way there in my in my Ford Transit. And back then, clubs didn't have their own sound systems. You had to take yours with you. Mm. So I, I had my first future wife-to-be, who was a dancer, and she'd gotten a dancing contract, and I had to do two clubs a night. I did an underground rock club uh, from nine till midnight, and at midnight I had to go and work in the Playboy Club with commercial music. But it's there that I first got a taste of you know, this sort of what it was called underground rock mm. in the day. It was not heavy metal or anything like it. I mean, the beginnings of Barclay James Harvest, for example, um, Gravy Train, that band. You know, there was a lot of this sort of stuff around. A lot of young Germans, like the rest of the young of the world, the youth of the world were, you know, uh, basically what Timothy Leary said, you know, turn on, drop out. And bollocks to the world, <laughs> and 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 it was you know it was great. Berlin was a sad place. The East Germans used to shoot young people in the back for trying to escape to the West. Mm. Um, I you know I spent nine months in a city that my father and his friends visited very often. The difference was they just flew by and I didn't. I stayed, um, and it, it was very important to me actually because. It was a very tough regime. It wasn't like working eight till three. You know, I was doing from nine o'clock till midnight and the Playboy Club didn't shut till six in the morning. 
Okay. So it was a very, very long night, six nights a week. And it helped to teach me what I needed to know for the future. So when you're you're bringing over your own equipment in your Ford Transit, when you're going like you have to play two kind of distinctly different crowds, you're doing kind of pop music of the day and then the underground rock. Are you carting? How many like vinyl records are you carting around with you at this stage in Germany? Well, I should I should explain actually, Fergal, that the um, the underground rock club, the Big Eden, it held two thousand people and it did have a very good for the day sound system. Mm. I needed my own my own in the Playboy Club. Um, and I suppose it, it wasn't really albums back then. Singles. It was singles. Mm. You know, I probably had six or seven singles cases with me and maybe one box of albums. Because back then, it was all singles. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I mean, I'm just trying to think. I've got a feeling there, the first Santana album might have come out about then as well, actually. Um, I used to play a, an Afro rock band called Ossibisa. Um, Their favourite track was music for Gong Gong. I, I'm pulling out from my memory okay. here to make it, if I can, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I used to crossfade that stuff. You know, the very and also on the other side of it, the very early beginnings of people like James Brown, mm. you know, that sort of stuff. It was all that kind of gear in the Playboy Club. In the underground rock club, of course, it was whatever was I was guided by the older DJs. That as soon as I turned up, it was obvious I was, you know, young. Yeah, yeah. They were surprised at the experience I had, but I didn't know enough about the rock music of the day. Sure. And they set about educating me and more or less told me what my set should have in it. Mm. And that was all right because, you know, they helped me through it. How did you get, like, you know, when when they're telling you what to play? Like, did you have to go out and buy all this then? Or, like, did you have some of it already? Or how did you manage to kind of gather the, the correct playlist for the crowd at the time? Fergal, back then, nobody ever worked to a playlist. It was all in the mind. I've never, ever had a written playlist at any show I've ever done, big or small, okay. ever. Um, it's I, I don't know what I can tell you. I, I only know this, right? DJs have specialist mental equipment they're fucking useless at everything except remembering about music yeah and the identity of what it is is taken directly back then from the artwork on the front cover of a vinyl yeah i you know they'd say to me well you need to play this this and this and i would after first hearing it i automatically decided how it would appear in the run some i would crossfade that were similar. Mm. Others, I'd stop and have a swift talk in between and then move on. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, look, I come from a showbiz family. I'm unlike most. It's on my mother's side. My grandfather, my mum's dad, was actually a vaudeville entertainer in the 1920s, oh, hey. 30s. Right. He, he was a musical song and dance man. Mm. Was Davy, I only—I mean, he died when I was two years old. But he was so lovely. He would sing and do stuff, you know. Mm. And then in the forties, my mother was on stage, right? Um, in in an act at six years old with her brother, who later on had a big swing band before going into the military in the RAF. I mean, it's a showbiz family, and I really consider myself an entertainer more than just the DJ. Mm. But I do it musically. I don't tell jokes. That would be a bad move. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That'd probably be the worst fucking move. <laughs> so you were you were kind of though maybe predisposed to do something in the world of entertainment. And this is kind of how you expressed your own creativity, I suppose, is is playing music for people and I well I think I always knew that it was going to be something to do with music. I mean at 15, like I said, I was at a British public school that was founded in 1536. Okay. And I fucking hated every minute of it. Mm. At lunchtime, myself and another mate of mine used to duck over to the pub behind the school um, when we were 15. And there was a piano and a drum kit in there. And he used to slide behind the kit. And he used to, you know, play the piano. And that was far more rewarding and entertaining than anything I ever learned there, really. Yeah. So I always knew that I was bound for entertainment I, I knew it was going to happen mm. I, I 
you know, to this day, I've never really been able to figure that out other than somebody up there in the gods. They pointed a finger at me and gave me a special talent, which has seen me through all these years and has given me insight, judgment, understanding and thinking like a musician as well as the DJ, which enables me at times of um, being a producer and arranger to sit between a band in studio with their work and Joe Public on the other side. Mm. And whereas a band might consider the best track on the album to be the most clever technically, yeah. if Joe Public doesn't hear it, it's not the one. The one is the obvious one that's going to fill a floor, make people laugh, smile, jump around and go fucking mad. That is the one. That is the floor puller. Therefore, it's the one that is the best. Sure, yeah. Of course. Makes sense. You know, so I, I have two heads and ears, mm. very special ears. I hardly play anything these days, a little piano maybe. Okay. But God gave me the ears to do the work. And it helped. Very good. So then how, how do you get then from Germany to back to the UK doing what eventually becomes your Soundhouse gig? All right. Yeah. Okay. It's like this. Um, nine months in Germany, we actually, we finished up having to leave my future first wife. Um, we're both Jewish, by the way. And in post-war Germany, the British army like everyone else, was paranoid about the communists just across the Berlin Wall, yeah. as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, my first wife, her parents had changed their name. They were Russian Jews from Skondovich to Harris. Unfortunately, um, we, we actually left the Playboy Club at the very end and started to gig for the British Army. And the uh, security people found out about this because back then civilians could go into East Germany, to East Berlin. The army weren't allowed to, but we could. And they were absolutely paranoid that we could have free access to the East with anything we saw, militarily speaking, mm. working on army bases in you know West Berlin. Yeah. So in actual fact, we had to get the hell out of Dodge City very fast one time. The boat, you know, I drove one night. You had to go through a corridor, um, you know, across East Germany just to get to Hamburg, really, under Russian um, convoy guides. You had a, you had a, some bloody military military vehicle up front. You had a, um, Another one behind you, you, you drove it about 20 miles an hour down the corridor. They were really, really strict. Mm. Um, an APC, actually, armored personnel carrier was at the back and some, some armed vehicle up front, not a tank or anything, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Mm. And anyway, so I, I had a mad dash to make a boat to Hamburg to get the hell out of Germany and get back to Harwich before we got picked up and questioned. Mm. And it was quite nervy at 19, I can assure you. I can imagine. Um, well, anyway, yeah, well, so I got back anyway. And um, I went back to the London clubs briefly. But by 1971, I think, 70-ish, 71, yeah. you know, music was changing. And whereas in the 60s, some of the greatest um, performers you know, musicians were very prevalent on some of the great outstanding songs of the day by the Soul Brigade mainly. I mean, you had session musicians that finished up in the Blues Brothers band, Donald Duck Dunn, Steve Cropper. Mm. These people were absolute brilliance. They could play. But in 70-71, this disco shit started appearing. <laughs> Like it was led by bands like the OJs. Mm. And then, then the one that I cannot ever stand, Barry fucking White turned up. <laughs> that was an end to it. I was working in a club behind the Hilton Hotel in Mayfair, and it was called Gulliver's. Okay. And every night, you know, there are two rooms. I was actually supposed to be working in the blues and rock room downstairs. 
And upstairs was like a poser's room, mirrors all the way down one side. You know, well-heeled gentlemen come in with all their psychophants and um, tarts and whatever, really. And one night, this sheik came in with his entourage and ordered 25 bottles of champagne at a time. The manager loved him. Mm. There was only one condition. I had to keep playing the same fucking Barry White song all the way through the night. One song. And boy, did I get pissed, you know, like mad. Yeah. And in the end, I, I had in I had in my album case um, a John Mayall album, The Blues Artist, Songs mm. from Laurel Canyon. And I thought, fuck it, I've had enough of this. And I put on Walking on Sunset, you know, which is a really great mid-tempo um, blues time piece. And the manager came over and started shrieking and shouting at me. And blah, blah, blah. In the end, I just said, oh, fuck it, you play it. I'm leaving, bollocks. Mm. And um, that was me out of Clubland because I didn't like the music. Yeah. For about a year and a half, I finished up going trucking. Um, I had to take licenses. Um, and I finished up working, delivering furniture, believe it or not, for Cavendish Woodhouse Company. Okay. Where we... Me being nocturnal, and I still am, totally. Mm. Um, we had to check into the depot at half seven in the morning, and you'd get, you know, like a run of anything between 15 to 30 deliveries around Greater London and Central London. And um, I had a trucking buddy. I mean, obviously, delivering furniture. There has to be two of you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you can't stagger upstairs to the wardrobe on your own. Of course not, yeah. <laughs> One man can't lift a piano. <laughs> no, absolutely. But two can drop it on the other's foot. <laughs> ah, yeah. The old crack. Um, as proved by Laurel and Hardy, I think. Mm. Um, well, you know, we were sort of working on estates and all sorts of shit. It was really funny. Um, one day, my buddy said to me, look, he said, I know this place in Kingsbury, which was near where we lived in Collindale. He said, why don't you meet me after work, have yourself a shower and get changed, and I'm going to take you to a place that you are just going to love. And I swear that you will make it your new regular place to have a beer. Okay. He said, well, have a couple of beers, you're going to love it. Meet me outside the Prince of Wales pub, Kingsbury Circle, 8 o'clock, and, you know, you, you're just going to... Anyway, I turned up. He, I mean, he met me there, Ray did, Ray, little Ray Pavitt. And we went in, and I was absolutely wiped out. I've been so used to club ridiculous sound systems in London mm. as they were. Um, I mean, the only clubs that had any decent sound system was the Louis Brown clubs, and they were good. Um, but the rest of them were utter shit like orange boxes. Yeah. I walked into this place, and there was a fucking great stack of PA either side of the stage. And, I mean, my own professional eyes looked at it and I thought, fucking hell, someone knows about sound. Mm. Somebody has actually had the nerve to put a full working band PA that the sort you might find at Hammersmith Odeon into this place. It's like twin 4520 Gauss-loaded scoop bass bins either side. Then there were upper upper frequency bass units, two twelves. Then they had Martin Shavers in the mid band, Altec Lansing fucking great big horns on top, and JBL Bullets to finish it off. And I couldn't believe what I was watching. Mm. The next minute, someone on stage cracked open a fader and nearly blew me out the back wall. <laughs> and I thought I had found heaven. Mm. Now that night. And here, here is that spiritual thing. That very night, one of the DJs on the stage, halfway through the night, opened the mic and said, um, we are looking for a rock-based DJ to come and join us up here. And if there's anybody out there tonight that fancies working with us up here on this stage, please come up and make yourself known. Okay. I did. I got the job, and that's how I arrived at the bandwagon. One night a week originally, Wednesday nights, mm. the main entertainment at the venue was put on by subcontractors 
steeples, discotheques. They also ran road shows. Um, I was contracted to work for them on the rock night, which is what I wanted to do anyway. Yeah. Eventually, after a while, they we had two bars there, a big bar. Main bar held about four and a half, five hundred. Back bar about three and a half hundred. And there was folding doors in between that could be wide open to allow full access. Yeah. But on a Thursday night, they tried to run a dance, soul, disco music night in the main in the main bar and had us on smaller equipment that they own in the back bar. Mm. But matters came to a head. This is how I got the five nights. Matters came to a head one night when the police raided the bandwagon mm. on a commercial music night. And to their absolute horror and disgust, they found there was underage kids in there. Surprise. <laughs> Shock horror. <laughs> oh, shameful. Absolute <laughs> disgraceful, shameful and unbelievable. The fact that 13 and 14-year-old girls would go to a discotheque <laughs> and participate of the alcoholic beverage. Yeah. Fuck me, how shameful. I mean, it never goes on anywhere else in the world. Does it, did it, or will it ever? Anyway, the end result was quite serious, Fergal. The police inspector, the local one, who'd been trying to shut us down apparently for a long time, finally pulled the raid together and got permission. The license came up for renewal at Wembley Magistrates. The manager of the bandwagon of the pub, the Prince of Wales, and the guys at Steeple's Discotheques that I work for, yep. they asked me to go and represent the venue in court. Well, because I could speak in public without any trouble, mm. I was well educated, I could hold my own and had absolutely no fear of speaking in a court. So I, I, I agreed that I would do it. If I got the opportunity to say something, I kind of worked out what I was going to say. Anyway, the day came, we got for the license renewal, the police stood up and, in, and opposed the renewal and tried very hard to get the magistrate to agree and therefore shut the venue. The magistrate was an old guy, you know, and didn't think that we'd ever get a chance at anything. Asked before he pronounced what he was going to do, said, is there anybody here who represents the Prince of Wales public house mm. and the venue known as the bandwagon? And I stood up and said, sir, I do on behalf of the management of the Prince of Wales and also the uh, contractors that provide the entertainment in the venue. And I said, sir, I would like it known in this way. On my night, which is a Wednesday night, there has never been any problem. There has never been any underage drinking. There has never been any trouble. We play a different kind of music, and people, mainly in couples, come to enjoy the music. They do not come to dance and throw themselves around and punch and fight and kick and get drunk on the way home. Our audience is older because of the form of music, mm. and the police inspector will confirm this to you. I put him on the spot. And he had to, and he was asked, and he had to agree yeah. that there had been a problem on a Wednesday night. Mm. So the magistrate then came up with the clincher. He said, well, he said, what I'll do is this. I've decided to give you a trial period of six months in which, in which time I will grant your entertainment music license under the following conditions. One, you run a proper membership with proof of age, identity, driving license, passport, etc. Two, that only your kind of music shall be played at this venue in future. <laughs> only yours and nothing else. Mm. Thank you, God. <laughs> Thank you, Your Majesty. Thank you, Magistrate. Yeah. It's in the book. It's a really true story. Yeah. So, of course, we agreed. Um, sold and dance music together with the kids left the next day and I got five nights of the week with with still under Steeple's discotheques because they needed the money. Yeah. But I, I got the week. And in that time we did a huge amount. We had, you know, charts, all sorts of things. If you're going to ask questions, carry on, Fergal. 
Yeah, no, 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 that's really interesting. So um, at this point now, you've kind of transitioned fully into playing hard rock. So you've explained the reason why, actually, which I wasn't aware of. So that is interesting how that came to be. But uh, what period now of the 70s are we in? Are we kind of early 70s, mid 70s, mid 70s at this stage? Oh, at 75, this happened. Sorry, yeah. Fergal. Um, I joined the uh, bandwagon in 1975. OK. Um, somewhere around about uh, September, October time. Um, and this additional, you know, uh, allowance uh, happened around about 1977, Okay, actually. Um, so I had five nights a week to cover. Well, I, I was on a mission. And with all the experience that I've gathered through the years, I suddenly found myself with a, you know, a venue that was playing music that hardly anybody else would. It was the punk revolution which incidentally to me has never happened. I hate it. I won't have it. And if you talk to my friend Steve, you'll find you'll get the same response. I was going to say. <laughs> I can. He's the same, exactly. I can see how you've stayed friends with Steve all these years. <laughs> yeah, well, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Look, I, I told you I'm very direct. Yeah. And I speak my mind. And I've always been that way, mainly partly thanks to my old man who told me that if a job's going to be done, you see it through to the very end mm. and you don't take no for an answer. That's how I got home once or twice. I understand. Mm. Right. It's like this. Because of my family roots, mainly in entertainment, in music and films as well, I know a lot about the silver screen Hollywood era. Mm. I appreciate the art form that is music. It's an art form to me. You know, the greatest version of it has to be classical music, which to this very day is still enjoyed by millions around the world. Mm. I believe in the old ways of music, Paul. That is that if you can't play, you can't write, you can't sing and you can't perform, they'll pull you off the stage. Mm. Only those that have those abilities, mm. in my view, mm. should be on a stage. And if you can't do any of those things and don't even think about it, mm. as far as I'm concerned, which is why punk hasn't happened, <laughs> because they can't do any of those things. What they could do very efficiently was gob and spit on people and rip their clothes. And by the way, I'm a biker. Mm. I was a club president for two years. And I don't like people who rip up leathers. I cannot see the point in that. And furthermore, I don't like people who wear leathers as a fashion thing. It's not. It's a protection thing. And when you ride your Harley down the road, you know it. Mm. And that's why I'm afraid I don't really have much truck with them. Well, I mean, a lot of heavy metal fans will wear leather as a fashion thing as well. They do. They do. But heavy metal, to me, is a way of life. Okay. It's not a fashion at all. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see the difference. Yeah, And, and, and I mean, the soul, look, heavy metal, it vibrates the soul. The spirit. It's a guiding light through life. Your lyrics, very deep, some of them, very serious. Mm. Some lighthearted, that they all tell historic stories like maiden songs do. Mm. It's a complete way of life. The add-on is biking if you want it. I've got another add-on as well. Like Bruce, I also have been a pilot since 1982. Oh, okay. But not to the same degree as Bruce. Sure. Uh, single-engined instrument rating, fly, have flown a lot in California. But that that is something else. But as regards music, I mean, it was a golden era, Fergal. You've just got to look at the bands that came out at that time and were around. You know, 50 years later, I, you know, people are still listening to, covering and copying bands like UFO, mm. Ronnie James Dio, Rainbow, Purple. ACDC, Whitesnake, my God, the list was endless. Sure. So they were the greats. They were denied any form of, of um, public exposure by the idiots at the BBC. Mm. And I say idiots because they know nothing. And the record companies are even worse. A&R men, actually, it stands for Artiste and Repertoire not arranging and recording, as many people think. Hmm. I, I was aware, but yeah. <laughs> yeah you, you would know this. You would know. Thanks for clarifying. 
Now, but I, as for the listeners and the watchers, yeah, yeah, right. I always try and make that point. It's French, artiste et repertoire, um, which I speak fluently as well. Funnily enough, um, it is a matter of fact that musicians, and I state musicians at that time, were being mercilessly sacrificed for a fashion concept that was anti-music to start with. You've only got to watch some of the early interviews that Johnny Rotten gave and some of the others. Mm. They were trying to sensationalize their own product, if you like. And the way they did it was turn it into an anti-music fashion and people like Malcolm McLaren, who should have been shot on sight, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, just dirtied the waters even more. Mm. I mean, it wasn't just a case of the older bands losing headway. Once I managed to achieve a kind of a some sort of a status and get the bandwagon accepted seriously by the music industry and the media of the day, then I could get into the record companies and start talking. Now, I did this, first of all, by getting Jeff Barton, who was sound's only rock journalist yep. at the time, to finally come down to the bandwagon and experience a, a Sunday night, which was our mad night of the week. Mm -hmm. The following sounds paper the next week from the front page carried the banner headline, and would you believe it, a survivor's report from a heavy metal disco. Yep. And it was a double-page centre spread. Once that happened, all hell broke loose. It really did. That's it, and it started. I knew I had to keep up the momentum. Once that had gone out, the first thing that happened was a load of tapes from all over the place arrived, mm. from Europe as well as the United Kingdom. Um, bands beleaguered, not being listened to, desperate to be heard by the industry. Our future lifeblood was being, well, usurped, for want of a better word, in support of bullshit, non-musical fashion. Mm. And I wasn't going to have it. There is no way you could have walked in a bandwagon and heard anything, anything that remotely resembled punk in any way, shape or form. Furthermore, under my new leadership there, the dress code was changed. Anybody wearing trousers, suits, ties will be not allowed in. <laughs> I had the seats thrown out. We had beer barrels installed upright to put your, your jug on. Mm -hmm. And um, I got I got um, Steeple's discotheque, who provided the gear at that stage, to tweak the sound system up a bit. And in the end, got 8,000 watts worth of power in there. Nearly four of it was sub-bass. Right. 15-inch high and low frequency Gauss drivers, twin-loaded. Um, and it was fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. Didn't care much about the lighting at the time. Yeah. So the first, I also, once the record companies believed in me and were happy to work with me and give me more exposure media-wise, I started arranging a series of personal appearances, the first that had ever been done in rock. The first one that I managed to get out of CBS Epic was Ted Nugent. Mm -hmm. He came to the bandwagon on a Tuesday night, <laughs> nine o'clock. Even Muff Winwood was on the 30-strong guest list. I had invited journalists from Melody Maker, Sounds, Record Mirror, it was an exercise in business, Fergal, because mm. that's what it was. And after Ted Nugent thankfully came, it was amazing. We had members of Judas Priest turn up, Rainbow, you know, I, I and um, members of White Snake. I I kept the momentum up, so I needed the publicity. But be before, so you're obviously always going to be linked to a kind of to an Iron Maiden and the new wave of British heavy metal. But the way you're describing it now. 
while punk was happening, there was still an appetite in London for the heavy rock, which preceded what became the new wave of British heavy metal. So the band you mentioned there, the likes of uh, White Snake, Rainbow, that type of thing. Um, so was it was this a very niche type of crowd? Like, were you getting basically all of the heavy metal crowd from London in their small numbers to come to this event? Or were, were there similar type of things happening around? Or was this the only kind of show in town for that type of music? I was the only kind in the country. Okay. There was the one and only, and that's why it was a flagship. And to be honest with you, no other venue uh, managers even wanted hard rock. There was a deficit even live at the local circuits mm. who were taking in local punk bands. I mean, you couldn't even get a gig at a pub if you walked in with long hair. You know, the first thing you heard from an idiot manager was, oh, I'm not having you in here. Mm. Those greasy-haired bikers yeah. playing all that loud guitar music. We don't want you here. Sure. Okay. You know, I mean, that was the standard. The bandwagon was the one and only, more or less, in the country mm. at the time, which is why I had to fight such a war, you know, to, to, to get it all established and open the doors. Okay. And then, so you get Jeff Barton and he writes the article, would you believe it, a survivor's report from Heavy Metal Disco. Then you get the, you know, meet and greets or, or whatever kind of things they were, probably not meet and greets, but the personal appearances from band members. Yeah, personal appearances. Not really meet and greet. Sorry, yeah. Time. Okay. But then how does the the kind of a bit of a groundswell you had there of popularity, how does that transform into what became the new wave of British heavy metal? I know it was kind of coined by, by Jeff Barton's editor and sounds and he, he ran with it then. Yeah, that's right. It was Alan Shepherd. Yeah. Um, so he kind of coined it and Jeff Barton ran with it. But, be, you know, did you notice something happening before that? Did Was there like this, this can't have all just been a kind of overnight fluke of somebody writing one article. So did you did you notice the pieces falling into place around 1978 or, or when did you notice anything well, that was kind of in a movement way happening? That's a good question, Fergal. I mean, it is a very good question. It was a process of gradual um, change. I mean, the first thing that kicked it off was the fact that all these demo tapes from unsigned bands mm. started arriving at the wagon. And I, I mean, then Barton phoned me up one day and said, listen, would you do a Soundhouse um, top 20 every week for mm. sounds, for heavy metal, a heavy metal chart? Yeah. And I said, all right, Jeff, but it's going to be based on the written requests of the punters at the wagon every week and i'll take them home at the end of the week after sunday night and i'll formulate a chart yeah with my requests and um you know you can print it on the edition for thursday and i will play it out as chart night on our thursday night show right um and be and because i was getting all these demo tapes from bands i mean if they were good what i would do is play them in to, to the punters down there, yeah. to the fans, the wagon. And I would say to them, right, you lot, um, I've got another tape for you tonight. I want to play a couple of numbers off it. And it's the usual system, right? If you like it, at the end of the two, make some racket so as I can hear you, and I know you like it. If you don't like it, just give it the thumbs down, and you'll not have to hear it again. <laughs> so I let them decide. Yeah. You know? And... Um, after a while, because, you know, some of the tapes were really good, yeah. they started appearing in our chart yeah. in sounds. And that encouraged even more. So that's how the wagon, or it was the bandwagon heavy metal sound house. Yeah. But yeah. the original punters from those times shortened it to the sound house. It became Neil Kay's heavy metal sound house after we left the wagon in 19... 80 and i put my show on the road with my own seven ton truck and a road crew so we get to that in a minute now but um you mentioned their written requests and i did used to wonder how the the um top 20 in sounds was compiled so would people write down requests on a piece of paper and hand them to you or how was that done yeah i kept i kept um i kept request pad up on stage oh, okay I mean, there were steps up to my stage yeah anyone could come up and talk to me while i was working and um, I used to say to people, look, write down your request. And if I get the chance, I'm obviously going to play it. Mm. And I'd pull out a whole load of vinyl representing some of these requests so I could see at a glance what had been requested that night. Yeah. And I'd look at them, know what they were from the covers, mm. 
and remember the requests because DJs do that. Yeah, yeah. And um, then I'd, you know, I'd I'd fix out the order of play and I'd put them in. Mm. And then I've got the requests for it. I take them home on the Sunday night and look at them, work it all out, how many requests for this one, how many requests for that. And that's how the chart was formed. And a lot of the demo tapes, it used to say in the chart, printed in sounds yeah. from the demo tape of the band, whatever. I, I read something interesting when I was doing a bit of research for this interview. So um, after Jeff Barton's article in Sounds in August in 1978, I read, and you can tell me if this is correct, that you decided to take the word disco out of your heavy metal night because you didn't feel it was representative of what was actually taking place uh, in the bandwagon. Ah, it wasn't a disco to start with. It was never a heavy metal disco. Mm. As soon as I basically arrived there and I got the five nights, that was it. Um, I renamed the place. No, I, I hated the word disco. Yeah. I always hated it because mm. it has absolutely nothing to do with rock. It's like punk. That's got nothing to do with music. So for me, I was playing around with the name. I was trying to figure out another way of naming the place and getting far, far away from the, from the word disco, discotheque. Yeah. And first of all, I thought, well, people come to the House of Sound. And then I twisted it all around and came up with the bandwagon, which was the venue. And that's what the name of that venue was. Mm. In the 50s and early 60s, yeah. it had been a country and Western live music venue. Okay. All right. And it was all done out like a B-movie sort of sheriff's office down one side, a cantina up the back. You know, it was all done out like a Western saloon. Sure. Which, which was absolutely brilliant, mm. as it happens. Um, you know, so that that's basically how I devised the name. It became the Bandwagon Heavy Metal Soundhouse. And after we left in 1980, Neil K's Heavy Metal Soundhouse. Very good. Okay. So um, we were talking there about, you know, it's 1978. Uh, you're getting a lot of demo tapes sent in. You're getting a lot of requests. The Heavy Metal Top 20 is up and running in sounds every Thursday. Around this time as well, Tommy Vance's Friday Rock Show starts. Do you feel, was that capitalizing on the popularity of what was taking place in the Soundhouse or in Sounds, the magazine? Or was this a coincidence because society was kind of changing and going in that direction anyway? Well, I know Tony Wilson very well. I knew Tommy Vance's producer, and I, I broadcast a show from time to time on Total Rock with my good friend Malcolm Dome, mm. who you will mm. have heard of. Of course. You know, um, Malky did one of the finest um, early reviews of the bandwagon that I'd ever read. Mm -hmm. um, and we became firm friends as a result, really good friends. We did a double act on, on Total Rock, uh, called the Rock and Roll Roundtable Circus. <laughs> yeah. And it was a kind of a Kenny Cash combo radio show in rock from the pirate days, but but with rock music and good guests. Yeah. You know, Magnum came on, Ian Anderson came on. It was an American touring bands and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, basically, um it 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 tran it transpired through the fact that even the BBC finally could see that something was happening. Yeah, see, so this is interesting because you were mentioning earlier that the BBC would never give these bands kind of the time of day, and now all of a sudden, <laughs> they are. Yeah, all of a sudden. Yeah. Well, I went up to see Tony. This is how I met Tony Wilson. I mean, you know, Total Rock came along much, much, much later mm. in the 90s. But I actually I actually built project bands as well. I had two. My own, my own career in the 80s was going all over the place. I was managing a studio complex, and Nazareth's old manager, Jim White, he came back from the States, built, um, he had the whole block on two levels down at Southwark, South London, and he phoned me up one day and asked me if I'd care to manage it for him, hmm. which was rather difficult at the time as I was doing a million other things. Yeah. But I did. And in the course of that, I built some project bands. Um, Flight 19 later, and Venture first of all, and I went up with Ventures demo, um, which we recorded at the Rolling Stone studio, funnily enough, because I met the sax player that did the solo on Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street. Oh, wow. Raff Ravenscroft. Mm. We took offices for management company of our own, Soundhouse Management Limited. 
in a complex right close to the Odeon Hammersmith. And Ralph Ravenscroft had his own production company there. And he put his head around the door one day listening to my band. And he said, I'd like to work with you on this. And it finished up that he um, co-produced our demo and he got downtime at the Rolling Stone studio. And it was a bloody good recording for the day. Hmm. And I, I said to the boys, I mean, I was management as well. And I said to them, listen, I'm going up to the BBC. I've made an appointment. This guy, Tony Wilson, knows well of me. He's granted me five minutes of his time, blah, blah, blah. Went up to broadcasting house. Tony, I couldn't see. He's sitting behind his desk, right? And he's got skyscrapers of cassettes piled up to the <laughs> ceiling. And he's hiding behind them, oh, right? Yeah. And I said, Tony, are you there somewhere? He said, yeah. He said, I'm behind the tower block right in front of you. <laughs> I said, well, I can't see you. He said, well, I promise you I am there. Yeah. I said, well, look, you know what it's about. I've got this band venture, blah, blah, blah. Got their demo tape, co-produced with rapper Ravenscroft, solo sax, Baker Street, Jerry Rafferty, blah, blah, blah. I'd love to get it broadcast. It's very good quality. I want you to have a listen. Be truthful, be honest. If it's a load of shit, tell me. Mm. And that's how basically I operate all the time. Mm. I want the truth. I speak the truth in music. And it, <laughs> he said, look, there's a smaller pile on your left. Now put it on the top there, and I will after lunch have a listen. I'm sorry I can't see you now exactly, mm. but rest assured I will honour it. Very good. I said, all right, Tony, thank you wherever you are. And... Uh, Two days later, he called me mm. and he said, it is good. They're very good. Not metal, though. They were like a foreigner journey. Yeah. That sort of band. Mm. Um, and from Southern Ireland, um, our singer came. They, I, I built this band from all over the UK. Mm. Rob Cassily, his name was. Okay. He'd also sung with, oh, God. Some other outfit from down that way as well. Okay. He, he had an exceptional voice. He was our singer. He used to come over. The boys would work out the, the rough songs and stuff. We'd call him over. He'd fly over, do the, the lyrics, and then showcases and so on. Anyway, Tony Wilson put it on the Friday Rock Show. And as a result of that, I received a phone call um from the marquee who said listen we've heard this we want you to come down and we know about you and you've got a following anyway in your own right i said yeah i have mm. actually he said well the manager of the venue said i want to meet you come over and we'll talk so i got a, a marquee out of that as well um i got a greyhound out of that that was later though in the 80s so you know that's kind of how that side of things started mm. but i had a load of different things going on all at the same time sure. it was a very confusing life i know I, and i think we've jumped ahead a bit here so i was just kind of saying yeah we have we have <laughs> I was... put it back on track Virgil. there we go just as things were getting juicy i cut it off well i have to leave you wanting something don't i next time on this interview series with neil k we'll talk about how neil k met iron maiden and how he ended up with that demo tape that he showed me at the start of the interview you will have heard but it's of no benefit whatsoever to somebody listening to a podcast but anyway i left it in just because he was so excited to show it to me I tell the story, or sorry, he tells the story of how he ended up with that tape, and that would become, you know, the basis of what would become known as the Soundhouse tapes, the first released by Iron Maiden. So that's where the story is going to pick up next time, or thereabouts, and I feel it's appropriate to play out this episode on the song Prowler, and of course the version that was featured on that demo tape, which became known as the Soundhouse tapes eventually when it was released commercially. So here's Prowler from the Soundhouse Tapes. I've been your host, Fergal Trainer, and I will see you next time.